Make Walters your spot for this NFL season. All indoor TVs are preset and are first come, first serve. They're proud to show every NFL game every week. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over Piguero playing shortstop stands in for the right side of the plate. Swings and lines one to the left. That's a base hit off the slider. In from third to score is Sawinski. Palacios will stop at second base. And it's now Pittsburgh four and Washington one. Now the set, the 2-2. Swing a long drive right field. If it's fair, it's gone. This one headed toward the river and it hits the foul pole. It's a two-run homer for Brian Reynolds and a 7-1 Pirates lead is 21st on the season. If it didn't hit the top of the foul pole screen, it might have gone into the Allegheny. Want to uh, thank everybody for uh, for being so supportive over you know my tenure here is my 15th year as a GM. You know with my new extension, you know I'll be here for a long, long time. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, September 14th. 2023, along with MassInSports.com, Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We on Wednesday did not get a great Major League debut for Jackson Rutledge, but we did get an official announcement of a contract extension for Mike Rizzo. The deal is done. The Nats on Wednesday morning announced having agreed on, quote, a multi-year contract extension, end quote, with president of baseball operations and General Manager Mike Rizzo. Then we on Wednesday evening had the Major League debut of one of the Nats' top prospects, starting pitcher Jackson Rutledge. And we in that game nearly had the Nats pulling off an improbable comeback. But the Nats did lose a 7-6 loss at the Pittsburgh Pirates in Game 3 of a four-game series. The Nats now are just 4-12 and over their last 16 games for the season now are 65-81. and So this is officially a fourth consecutive non-winning season for the Nats. But Mark, the Mike Rizzo extension is done. He on Wednesday morning spoke for well over 20 minutes via virtual press conference. Do you think that the off-the-field stuff with the Nats now will settle down, or uh, is the fun just beginning? <laughs> Uh, I think the big stuff we've gotten out of the way now, at least, at least from from my perspective as a beat writer, it's one less thing to have to stress over. Well, when are we going to get news about that? And oh my God, is there a chance that they might not actually get a deal done? And now I got to you know worry about covering a GM search. So from my standpoint, thankfully, it's not anything I have to worry about. Didn't catch anybody by surprise. I think we've been talking about for a few weeks here that we did believe ultimately this was going to be the outcome of it. It was just a question of when and 
what the terms would be. We didn't get the exact you know, length of it, which I think is a key point. But in looking back at his old deals, every single one of his past ones had either been two years with options or there was one deal he got in the past that was three guaranteed years. So we know Davey got two years plus an option. I would not be surprised if it's a similar term for Rizzo. And I think it's appropriate. I think everybody understood that this was the most likely outcome. And I, I think probably a lot of relief among some people that this did get done and it's not going to drag into the end of the season or even into the offseason. So it was on August 21st that we had the reports that the Nats and Mike Rizzo were close to finalizing a contract extension. It ended up not being until September 13th that the Nats officially announced the extension. In between August 21st and September 13th, we learned of a lot of changes in the Nats front office. September 2nd, we learned that the team's longtime international scouting director, Johnny DePuglia, had resigned. September 6th, we learned of the Nats having made significant cuts to their scouting department. September 8th, we learned that the Nats were moving their assistant general manager and vice president of scouting operations, Chris Klein, into a new role of special assistant to Mike Rizzo. Knowing what we now know and looking back on this gap between when the reports of an extension being close happened to when the extension actually happened, what do you think was happening? Was it just this sorting out of what the new look front office would look like and there was a bit of give and take going on between Mike Rizzo and the learners? Do you think more was happening? What now is the proper way to assess that multi-week gap between those reports and this official announcement? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things probably. I, I can't say with 100% certainty what exactly this was, but my sense of this is that back then, they probably had some preliminary discussions. There was a realization that the learners wanted to retain Mike Rizzo and that Mike Rizzo wanted to remain as the GM. And they got the David Martinez deal done. Riz said pretty openly that he believed it was more important to get Davies deal done first. He felt like having a lame duck manager in that clubhouse down the stretch would have been a bad look. As far as the timeline goes, I thought it was important to get Davey done, you know, because the, the chemistry in the clubhouse and, uh, and, a, and a lame duck manager with three months is, is not the way you want to go through this thing. And I don't disagree with that. I do think it's strange. You don't see this very often where a manager is done first before a GM. You would have thought that those would get done at least in concert with each other. I do think there was probably more discussion there between Rizzo and the Lerner family about making changes to his front office and that probably was a prerequisite, if you want to call it that, or a, a hold up to say, let's talk about some things we want to do differently before we finalize the terms of your new contract. So that could be some of it. I think the length of the contract, some of the financial terms maybe were being held up that Rizzo himself might have been trying to hold out for something. And again, we won't really know. He is not one to divulge those kind of details. And you know, unlike when a player signs a contract and usually have an agent, that is more than happy to spill the beans on some stuff. In this case, you have a, a GM who's negotiating for himself with his owner. And so there are very few people who truly know the exact terms of this and how it went down. So we may never know the exact details of it. But I do take him at his word when he said he never doubted that it was going to happen. The extension, I always felt, you know, I was always confident uh, that it was going to happen. I do think they always believed it would get done. I think they probably wanted to take care of those other things first, and then it got to a point that said, okay, we've done all that. Now let's finalize what the terms of his new deal are going to be. And only Mike Rizzo knows, but I'm sure part of him would have preferred to keep everything intact the way it was with his staff. 
He's a loyal guy. A lot of these are, you know, Chris Klein and Johnny DePuglia are longtime associates, confidants, friends of his that he's known even before he came to Washington, D.C. So I'm sure it was difficult for him to have to make those kind of changes. But you also reach a point in your career where you've been doing this for a long time and you say, if things haven't been working exactly the way they should, and if my bosses say they want to do things differently, then maybe you have to just suck it up, make those changes, and you know, save yourself in the process. Hey, Nat Chat. Tim Shovers here, producer and founder of this podcast. As the end of the season approaches, letting you know about the opportunity to give an end-of-season donation. As you can imagine, 162 games and shows can add up real quick. If you're so inclined... Check out our website, natchatpodcast.com. Click on the merch button and you'll immediately see the chance to donate to the show. Options range from $5 to $47, plus an option to write in whatever amount you might prefer. Again, natchatpodcast.com. Click on merch and go from there. Any questions, send me a note to natchatpodcast at gmail.com. Now back to the show. The woods and the cruises and the houses and and that type of thing, and you can see the, why, why there's excitement uh, not only in our organization but uh, but uh, you know with the with the fan base because you know they see the, this timeline you know coming to fruition. They see the end of this of this uh, rebuild tunnel, if you will. I think one of the real fascinating aspects to all of this is is extending Mike Rizzo the right call. Like we have spent so much time talking about what's happening because what's happening hasn't been exactly clear. And we've spent time talking about why what we know is happening is happening because this is such a unique situation for so many different reasons. But the basic thing of for the health of Nationals baseball operations, for the long-term success of this franchise is extending Mike Rizzo the right call. And I think it's a really difficult question to answer because there still is a lot that we don't know. But, you know, if it's true that he didn't want to make these changes that the Nats are making in the front office and he wanted to stick with the status quo, despite the overwhelming evidence that the status quo has not been working from a standpoint of drafting and player development, I think that does make you wonder if the right move is being made here in terms of him being extended. We get the ownership uncertainty. We get why Mike is staying. But when you think about what is best for the Nets, what it will put the team in the best position for the next five to 10 years is keeping Mike Rizzo the right move. You know, it was interesting in his conversation with you guys on Wednesday morning in the virtual presser, he talked about these front office changes. And he he essentially said, he didn't say this exactly, but the idea here is to become more in on analytics and sports science and modernize things. And, you know, it was just the kind of thing where you're like, these things should have been done a while ago. Like the fact that they're being done now is part of the problem. And if he had to be dragged kicking and screaming into doing these things, and I'm not saying that that's the case, we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know. But if that's the case, that does make you question if the right thing is being done here and him being extended. And I just do wonder about that. I wonder if five years from now, we're going to look at this and say, you know, the time had come to part ways, bring in someone younger, more in on analytics and do things the way that so many of the good teams now are doing things, as opposed to sticking with someone who has done a lot of good things for the Nets. Okay. That that can never be taken away from him, but from someone whose recent results had not been so good and who was part of an older guard that was fading fast at the time of the extension. 
So you say five years down the road, 10 years down the road. I think that's a very fair question to ask. But I think the key here, without knowing specifics, but I would be very surprised. I'd be shocked if he's locked up for five more years. I think it's much shorter term than that. And I think that's the key here is that my hunch would be that ownership is saying, okay, there are some things we want to kind of do a little differently that we got into this predicament where we tore everything down and started all over again, in part because of things that this front office did not accomplish, which you would hope that it could have done a better job at. But they already made that decision two years ago, as we've discussed, and you kind of have to now give them a chance to follow through and see through what they've begun. But it's not an infinite window for that to happen. I think two years, let's say that presumably he got two guaranteed years, maybe he got a third, but let's say it's two. I think two years from now, it is perfectly valid to judge the state of the organization, the state of the rebuild. And if you do not see tangible results, both a winning product on the major league field, but I think it's even more than that. I think you need to see that the players that they have acquired either through these trades or through the draft or through international signings are a part of that. They can't go out and just spend a bunch of money on free agents and put together a winning team again. I don't think that is evidence of them having improved and done something that can be sustainable for a long time. So I think it has to come from within. But if two years from now you see that that has happened, then I think it's appropriate to stick with what you have. If you don't, I think it's entirely appropriate to say, okay, it's time to move on. As we've discussed before, I think if you had made the decision two years ago and said, we're ready to try something different, that would have been fine. That would have been appropriate. I think two years from now, it's appropriate. I think right now, you're halfway through this rebuild. Would changing your GM and completely overhauling your front office ultimately be what's best for you? Or does that actually set you back because now you're bringing somebody new and trying to win and build with players they didn't acquire. Yeah, I mean, it would depend on who you're bringing in. I mean, if someone was available who you thought was a home run hire, I mean, let's say the Nats had a shot at David Stearns, who it looks like is going to go to the Mets, all right? I'm not saying that David Stearns is a genius, but I thought he did a pretty good job with the Milwaukee Brewers. Let's say that the learners could have struck a deal with David Stearns and felt like they got themselves one of the guys who's really at the forefront of smart baseball minds right now. I mean, at that point, do you have to stick with Mike Rizzo? Like, this isn't about what you owe someone. It's just what's in the best interest of the team. So, you know, I'm just using that as an example. I think the other thing, too, is, and this, of course, is always a wild card. Let's say the Nats get sold in a year and Rizzo's on a two or three year extension. Well, all bets are off and new ownership is going to come in and isn't going to owe Mike Rizzo anything. And, you know, that, of course, has always been part of this. Had the Nats been sold a year ago, who knows where we'd be and who knows where Mike would be? There's so much here. Like Mike, in a lot of ways, is very lucky to have this predicament. And I'm sure working for the learners at times has been extremely frustrating. And a line that has been used is that Mike has had to manage up much more than he's had to manage down. But at the same time, it's like he's actually benefited from this predicament because in a lot of other circumstances, he probably would have been gone a while ago because of the situation that this team found itself in. And I think that's something to keep in mind, too. It's a very unique scenario, in part because of the ownership, in part because the team just won a World Series a few years ago, in part because Mike did such a good job building up the team the first time. So it's never been like this obvious thing of you have to fire Mike Rizzo. Like, no, it's it's always been a, a kind of a gray area issue. But 
with the team now making these other changes in the front office and essentially saying the way we have been doing things has not been good, keeping the guy who has presided over all of this, it's just odd. It's not something that you see very often in sports. I mean, uh, we've talked about how many GMs ever have the opportunity to build a franchise from the bottom up, have an eight-year run of success, win a World Series title, then tear it all down and now get the opportunity to do it all over again. That's pretty unique. You may have it working for multiple teams. Maybe you go somewhere else and there have been executives who have won championships with multiple teams. I'd have to really rack my brain to think if anybody else has been in a position that Mike Rizzo has where they actually have the opportunity now to do this twice for the same organization. You know, he's now third longest tenured in the major leagues in terms of people in charge of baseball operations. It's Brian Cashman with the Yankees and John Mosaic with the Cardinals. When Kenny Williams was fired by the White Sox a few weeks ago, he got bumped off the list and Rizzo moved up a slot. So he's now third in seniority. And that's a pretty significant thing. And it shows you how rare it is for somebody to last this long. But to get to the point about ownership, and I thought this was a really interesting part of the day, in both what Mike Rizzo said and in what Mark Lerner wrote in his statement in which they announced the new extension for Mike Rizzo, I want to read you part of Mark Lerner's statement because I think this is, you know, we've been parsing a lot of what Mark Lerner has said recently. I think this one is worth parsing because I think it does divulge quite a bit about the state of things right now in the organization and where they've been and where maybe they're going. He says, we've all worked collectively to build what was essentially an expansion team with no major league depth into a contender and then into a World Series champion. We've experienced some tough losing seasons and we've hung championship banners and we've done it all together. We are once again hard at work to build a championship contender in DC. We now believe we have the beginnings of a roster filled with promising young players and exciting prospects at nearly every position. While we once talked about winning World Series rings for our baseball-loving fathers, Mike's family and ours now look forward to winning even more rings for our children and grandchildren, and of course for every other Nationals-loving fan and family everywhere. We are excited about our future. Now, maybe that's just a token line there, and it sounds good, and showing the connection that Mark Lerner had with Ted Lerner and Mike Rizzo had with his father, Phil Rizzo, both of those men who worked for the organization passed away in recent years. But that sounds to me like an owner who's not selling this team in the immediate future or does not believe he's selling the team in the immediate future, that he's invested in trying to do more and trying to bring this thing back. And then Rizzo himself, and I asked him the question, as you went through all this, what kind of assurances did you seek from ownership or did you get from them about their intentions? moving forward. And he made a point to say that he has never seen the Lerner family more involved than how they've been in the last few years. He says, believe me, when, when reports come out that uh, they've got one foot in and one foot out, that's not the people I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Uh, these guys are into it. They're into every step of this rebuild. They're looking forward to, uh, to coming out the other end and to, and to you know, start winning some games and start being a, a contender in, uh, in this league and to you know, put up some championship banners again. I, I've, I see no evidence whatsoever of, uh, of this fan base, in particular Mark Lerner, you know, being you know, uh, uh, half in and half out. They're all in. They want to win. And, uh, and I, I, have, I, have no, uh, I have no thought process of them wanting to get rid of the team and sell it. Now, again, maybe he's just 
saying that because it sounds like the right thing to say. We don't really know behind the scenes any of this stuff. But all the indications I've gotten both on this day and for a while now suggest that everybody believes the Lerner family is going to continue to own this team for a while. And now the proof will be in the pudding. Do they go put the resources back into it to try to build another winner? Yeah, my guess would be that all of that is what they believe to be true right now at this moment in time, but is subject to change. And so if there is a resolution to the Masson issue, or if Ted Leonsis comes knocking on Mark Lerner's door and makes him an offer he can't refuse, then all of a sudden, everything you just read doesn't apply anymore. Like I I think a lot of this can change, and I think a lot of this would change if the Lerners were getting the offer for the team that the learners want. And what that offer is, we don't know, but there is an offer that they would deem appropriate. I mean, I think it's worth acknowledging the learners have never come out and said that they're no longer selling the team. Artie Moreno did this with the Angels a while back. The Angels were for sale, and then Artie Moreno put out a statement saying the Angels are no longer for sale. The learners have not done that. It's kind of just been this unspoken thing of, oh yeah, they're selling the team. I did think it was interesting what Mike said to you in response to your question, but I also said to myself in listening to that, I mean, the learners just gave Mike Rizzo an extension, you know, likely worth millions of dollars. Like, what is he going to say? These people, you know, I don't know what to think about that. Like, no, he's going to say that stuff. He's going to pump them up and, you know, make them sound good. So I don't know. I mean, Mike Rizzo, two months before trading Juan Soto, said the Nats had no interest in trading Soto and we're going to build around him. So I, I just, I don't know. People lie. People say things that sound good in the moment. Maybe everything that they said on Wednesday is true. Okay, I'm not going to sit here and call people liars, but I think we know enough about sports and sports executives that sometimes things are said that uh, aren't exactly entirely true. So we'll see. I did enjoy this. I believe this was the first question that you asked. You referenced Mike Rizzo staying on for the next phase of the Nets. And I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but you did not use the word rebuild. And we know that Mike has been very sensitive to the word rebuild. At least he was. His response to you, included him saying the word rebuild like 15 times, it felt like. I got a kick out of that because if you remember in 2021, he would not call what the Nats were doing a rebuild. It was like this dreaded R word that he would not say. And in recent months, he has become very comfortable with saying rebuild. And in his response to your question, which did not include the word rebuild, he said the word rebuild. I'm telling you a bunch of times, I was cracking up listening to that. It was almost like he was being paid every time he said the word rebuild. So I found that to be entertaining. Well, you know, you go through the dog days of the the rebuild and, you know, you just hope to get an opportunity to, you know, have some of the glory uh, that, you know, the rebuild brings you. And, you know, that's kind of was my thought process. You know, it's never fun to, to rebuild. No, no general manager or field manager wants to, you know, you know, loves the word rebuild. I wish I was good enough to have thought that up in the moment <laughs> to purposely not use the word in hopes of then getting him to say it. That was not my intention at all. I'm just trying to come up with a way to say what I asked of him. But yeah, I, I noticed the same thing. I mean, he absolutely has embraced the word rebuild in a way that he certainly did not a year ago or two years ago. And I don't know. It, look, we, we love to parse words around here right now. Maybe that is also in some way him acknowledging or trying to lower the bar as if to say like, hey, we're still in a rebuild here. Don't expect us to win in the next year. Like if we take a step back in 2024, hey, we're still rebuilding. Again, I may be interpreting way too much in what he said, but you're right. He said that word a lot and probably the first time I've ever heard him use it to that extent. 
Another thing that stood out was in talking about what has happened with Johnny DePuglia and Chris Klein, he mentioned both internal and external candidates. It seems to me, if you're dissatisfied with the way that things have been, you probably aren't going to go with an internal candidate. Although I guess you could say if people have been underutilized or not listened to, then maybe internal candidates are a viable way to go. What do you think, though? Do you think those hires will come from within or from the outside? I would hope, and the way I interpreted it was that they're going to look at a number of candidates, some of them internally, some of them externally, and ultimately decide who they think is best for it. I hope that is the way that they will do it. There were a lot of comparisons made, and I was thinking it in the moment, and he said the same thing uh, in response to a question. They basically did this with their player development system two years ago after the 2021 season, made a lot of changes there and hired a new person in charge of player development. And that person in charge was internal. That was D. John Watson, who had been a special assistant to Rizzo for a few years, not one of their long-term guys, and somebody who did have background in player development with other organizations. So it was an internal hire and a promotion, but also not necessarily just a one of his guys who had been there forever. So I'm interested to see the same thing when it comes to international scouting, and particularly the scouting director. You know, that is a position that is near and dear to Mike Rizzo's heart. It's what he did himself for a very long time, kind of with the Nationals when he was first hired here, but more so with the Diamondbacks prior to that. So does he want a guy that he already knows and has a relationship with who has done this and is a lifelong scout? Or does he want to look outside and maybe bring in somebody who might be new and, like you said, present some new ideas? I don't know the answer to that. My hunch would be and my hope would be is that they're going to look at all those possibilities and ultimately decide what makes the most sense. I would also, and this is this is weird because you would normally say you don't want ownership to be too involved in decisions like that. You want to trust your GM to make those decisions. But if the changes are coming at the behest of ownership, which I think probably we have a sense that like if Mike Rizzo is left to his own devices, he's not overhauling everything on his own, okay? Then I do wonder if there's going to be some oversight of this. And if it's not straight up Mike Rizzo's call, but if the Lerner family has a say in it and how they would go about doing that, that would be fascinating to know how that process works. Yeah. And if that's the way it has to be, then again, I come back to why are you extending the guy? Like if you think that little of who he would pick, like what are we doing here? You know, continuing down this path. But uh, such is the case. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi here to tell you about another great deal being offered right now by Window Nation to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation is offering you even more. When it comes to new windows, Window Nation always gives you more, but now Window Nation is giving you even more, more. Uh, the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus a lot more. Pay nothing for two full years. Another amazing deal on the great windows that Window Nation can provide to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Save up to 50% with the purchase of a house of windows. You know, even given what has been happening with interest and mortgage rates, Window Nation still is keeping 0% interest for two years. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the great deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off 
plus you pay nothing for two full years. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi from the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Given the Hollywood strike, SNL might not be coming back anytime soon. If you need your weekend update fix, then the Game Time app has you covered. Game Time will help you get those tickets to see Colin Jost and Michael Che this Friday night at DAR Downtown. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. And listeners, download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's your Dylan Cruz update for the game played Wednesday evening in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Cruz didn't play in the 7-4 loss to Bowie. No stated reason found why. The outfield instead featured Andrew Pickney in left field, just called up from Wilmington. Now back to Mark and Al. Have come from the left side of the plate. And the pitch swung on, chopped on the ground to the right side. Big hop. Rivas has it looked at second. No play there. Throw to first. Too late to the pitcher covering. He waited too long after going towards second to field. The high chopper looked at second, saw no play there, whirled around and threw to first, and a hustling K-Bet Ruiz beat the play as Blankenhorn scores, and this is now a one-run game. The Pirates 7 and the National 6. The Mike Rizzo extension is official, and we had a ball game on Wednesday evening. It was a Nats loss, a 7-6 loss at the Pirates, but it was a game in which the Nats trimmed a 7-1 fifth-inning deficit to a 7-6 ninth inning deficit. K-Bert Ruiz in an Nats one-run ninth had a pinch first pitch RBI infield single on a chopper to the right side of the infield to cut the Nats deficit to 7-6. The Nats in this top of the ninth, bases loaded one out and their numbers one and two batters, C.J. Abrams and Lane Thomas coming up, but each guy ended up making it out and the Nats comeback attempt fell short. Be honest, in the moment, did you think the Nats were going to win this game? Because boy, they rallied. That was impressive. This looked like blowout city and the Nats did a really good job of chipping away at that Pirates lead. I felt like at minimum they were going to tie the game in the ninth, if not take the lead. And I felt that way for a few reasons. 
Number one, they were getting some good quality at bats there in that inning. Number two, the Pirates' defense was atrocious and helping prolong that inning. And number three, David Bednar was all over the place. Supposed to be one of the top closers in baseball, and he didn't look like it at all. So it felt like that was one of those that the train is off the tracks for the Pirates' closer, and he's not going to be able to get back on. Now, the amazing thing, go back and watch the last two pitches of the game. There's a 3-2 fastball to C.J. Abrams right down the pipe, and he just missed it. I think most of the time would make contact on that pitch at least, not strike out and at least put the ball in play. And I felt like in that case, well, he's unlikely to be doubled up because of his speed. So I thought there'd be a good chance if he made contact that uh, they'd get the run home. And then after that, the first pitch at the at-bat. Now, we've seen Lane Thomas do this recently with the bases loaded. There was that extra inning game at home that he made two critical outs on the first pitch, hitting grounders to short. This one, again, fastball over the plate. He hit it well. He had a line drive to right center field, just was tracked down for the final out. So a little bit of bad luck there, but also a little bit like a boy. They, it was there. Bednar was putting it on a platter for them to finish off that rally. And what really would have been an impressive come from behind victory, given the way this one started, it wasn't to be. But there were good things that took place. They just couldn't finish the job. Lane Thomas in a game one for five with an RBI double did strike out three times, but also had not one but two outfield assists. Uh, a salute to Drew Millis. He was an ad starting catcher and number seven batter. He had his first major league home run. Did commit a throwing error, but Millis in an ad's one run fifth, a one out solo homer to right field on a one two pitch to cut the Nats deficit to 7-2. And what has gotten into Dominic Smith? He is not only hitting, he is hitting for power. Dom on Wednesday evening as the Nats starting first baseman and number three batter, two for four with a two-run homer and a double. In game two of this series, the uh, 5-1 loss on Tuesday evening, one for two, single in a walk. In game one of the series, 6-2 win on Monday evening, two for four with a solo homer and a double. It has taken way too long, but the power is uh, starting to be put forth here by Dominic Smith. I don't know where it came from, but it's been nice to see for sure. Actually hitting the ball with authority, hitting it in the air with some authority, something he has not done. He, he's he been among the league leaders in singles all year long. That's something to be very proud of. And he's even jokingly at times said that he feels like he's used up his full quota of singles for the season and it really doesn't need any more of those. But all of a sudden, this month, eight games played in September, three doubles, two homers. He's hitting 357, but he's slugging 679. Where has that been? And could they just get a little bit more of that from him on a consistent basis and what a difference it would make? I have no idea. I'm not going to read too much into eight games in September and just declare that Dom Smith has been fixed or that this proves that he can turn it all around next year. It's been nice to see. It's coming at a nice time. It would have been really nice, though, to see that more consistently all year long. Well, we did have the Major League debut of Jackson Rutledge on Wednesday evening, and uh, unfortunately, the debut did not go well. Jackson Rutledge per MLB Pipeline, the Nats' number 13 prospect. The Nats on Wednesday afternoon announced that they had recalled Jackson Rutledge from AAA Rochester. The corresponding roster move, by the way, was the Nats optioning reliever Mason Thompson to Rochester. That was interesting. But Rutledge in this game just did not do well. Seven runs in three and two-thirds innings. Uh, He gave up 10 hits, a two-run homer, two doubles, and seven singles. He issued a walk and a wild pitch. He recorded just two strikeouts. He, over his mere three and two-thirds innings, threw 90 pitches. Rutledge, per StatCast, allowed eight 
exit velocities, each of at least 100 miles per hour. And of course, there's context here. The Pirates are one of the worst hitting teams in the majors this season, and yet still Rutledge got hit around like he did. It's impossible to watch a Nats starting pitcher, especially one who is pretty well regarded, make his major league debut against the Pirates and not think about June 8th, 2010, Steven Strasburg. We did not get that on Wednesday evening. We did not get anything close to that on Wednesday evening. Obviously, it's one game. Obviously, you want to see more from Jackson Rutledge. You're not going to arrive at any conclusions off this. But this was pretty rough, again, against a team that is not known for uh, doing well in the batter's box. Yeah, and unfortunately, this has become the norm when a Nationals rookie makes his Major League debut. This is a mind-blowing stat. You mentioned Steven Strasburg and how Rutledge didn't come close to that. Nobody has come close to that in all those years. Rutledge is the 17th different national starting pitcher to make his Major League debut since June 8th, 2010, when Strasburg set the world on fire. Not one of those 17 has come away with a win. Now, Pitchers wins, we don't need to get into their value. There have been a handful of good starts within that. Joanna Doan, Lucas Giolito come to mind first and foremost. They didn't get the win, but they probably pitched well enough. But still, those 17 pitchers collectively have gone 0 and 11 with six no decisions. And it does tell you something about how much of a rocky road it has been for them. And it also reminds you of just how special Strasburg was because that is not the norm for people to do that. With Rutledge, I mean, that first inning felt interminable and you were worried, is he even going to make it out of this inning? And that's, God, the last thing you'd ever want for somebody in their major league debut. First four batters reach all on hits. He ends up giving up six hits and four runs in the inning. There was some bad luck, a couple of bloopers that were right down the line that just landed fair. But there was also, as you said, some pretty loud contact. And I think what stood out to me in watching it, he was throwing a lot of change-ups, and this is apparently a pitch that he has really worked on and has kind of helped elevate him this year. And I counted of the 10 hits he gave up in this game, six of them came on change-ups, and here's the total altogether. He threw 16 of them in the game. 10 of them were put into play. There was only one of them was a called strike, and there were zero swings and misses on the change-up. And you know, if that's your fastball, you get it. Even if it's on a breaking ball, you get it. But for a changeup, that's really rare. A changeup is not a pitch that's supposed to be hit that much, certainly not hit that hard. It's supposed to throw a hitter's timing off. Now, I haven't seen him enough to really know what the issue was there, but either it's very detectable out of his hand, it's not enough difference between that and his fastball, it's not moving, it's not located, whatever that is, that pitch was really hittable for the Pirates in this game. And long-term, if he's going to have a chance at this level to have any success, that has got to change. He's got to figure out how to make that pitch effective, or he's got to ditch it and find some other off-speed pitch to throw. Yeah, he's listed as being 6'8", 251. You don't see 6'8", 251 and think change-up, right? You think flamethrower. And uh, look, again, it's one start. I mean, you don't want to get too bothered by it. But it was rough. And, you know, it is a reminder. I mean, for all of the talk we have about these Nats position players in the rebuild, this rebuild may come down to Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray, Cade Cavalli, Jackson Rutledge. And if those guys don't hit or if enough of those guys don't hit, I'm not going to say it's not going to matter what happens with the position players, but the team may still not do well 
if you don't develop some starting pitching here, it's going to be awfully difficult to win. Not impossible, but it's going to be tough. And the issue is, you know, you don't have many viable options in terms of high-end young starting pitchers. Like, it really is about those four. You maybe now can throw Jake Irvin into the mix, but these guys need to hit. At least a few of these guys need to hit. Otherwise, uh, this rebuild is in some trouble. Yeah, no, I remember saying back on draft day when Paul Skeens went to the Pirates and Dylan Cruz went to the Nats, that puts a whole lot of pressure on Cade Cavalli to live up to it because all of a sudden he and Gore are supposed to be your top guys. Gore has had his moments, as we've talked about, but he's not there yet, and there's a big consistency issue on him. We've seen Josiah Gray look really good in the first half of the season and really not in the second half of the year. Jake Irvin's been a pleasant surprise, but is he the ace of the staff in the future? Probably not. I think we said going into this one that we didn't necessarily think that they view Rutledge in those terms, although you're not going to judge too much on one start. The problem is if it doesn't work out like you just described it there, then you're going to have to find your pitching elsewhere. And that means free agency, which costs a lot of money. And as we've seen, sometimes works out very well and sometimes works out horribly for you. So this organization has experienced both ends of that spectrum. There's also the trade possibility. I do think a year from now, probably, probably not this winter. If history is repeating itself and Mike Rizzo is trying to duplicate what he did a generation ago with them, then the Gio Gonzalez trade is going to come at some point and he's going to trade from a perceived strength in his farm system. In this case, you would think that's outfielders and trade for a big league starting pitcher. But, you know, the long way to go before that happens and who knows how that all works out. Yeah, they need at least a couple of their young starters, homegrown guys to actually live up to what they're supposed to be. And so far, the results are mixed at best. Well, a pitching bright spot for the Nats on Wednesday evening was the bullpen. Three Nats relievers combined for four and a third scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Joe LaSorsa won and a third scoreless innings. Robert Garcia, a perfect bottom of the six with three swinging strikeouts. And Andres Machado tossed a uh, perfect bottom of the eighth inning with two strikeouts. So you did get some good stuff with the bullpen. But with Mason Thompson, now it's not shocking because he really has fallen off since he was doing so well earlier this season. And he did get optioned to Rochester multiple times last season. So it's not like this was unthinkable. But were you at all surprised that that was the corresponding roster move to Rutledge? A little bit just because we've seen two others who've clearly been below him on the depth chart as the guys who get moved up and down. That's Amos Willingham and Joe LaSorsa. Both those guys are kept in the big leagues for now while Mason Thompson set down. But I think it does show you they really don't trust him right now. It's been very erratic, if not more times than not, hasn't been getting the job done. And so you're not using him in spots of consequence. And I think also you understand that when these starting pitchers don't go deep in the games, you've got to have relievers who can give you innings. Lasorsa has shown he can do that. Willingham actually did show in his last outing he can do that. So that may be the priority at the moment as opposed to a potential high-end, late-inning, high-leverage guy. I think at the moment, they're more satisfied just going with Jordan Weems in front of Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan. Not that they've needed any of those guys very much lately because they have not been in a position to win a lot of games lately. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Certainly interested in hearing from you guys, uh, your thoughts on the Mike Rizzo contract extension. We have a website that we invite you to check out to natschatpodcast.com at which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All 
Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. Next up for the Nats, game four of this series at the Pirates. Thursday afternoon at 12.35, Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. Swing and a drive hit well to right field. This is way back. This ball is going, going, and it is gone. Goodbye. It's the first Major League home run for Drew Millis. Coming from the left side of the plate, a no-doubter. Bang, zoom goes Drew Millis. His fourth big league RBI and his first home run.